0: Ephesians chapter 6, and our children can head out there, I think, at this time. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin once more at verse 10, just to to get the the context here. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Page just blew over there, sorry. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, This section, this entire section really, uh, is kind of an extended analogy uh, that the Apostle Paul is using uh, to help us understand the Christian life. And uh, it is very much a different kind of picture uh, than many people give you of Christianity in our day and time. The the evangelical world, especially in the western part of the, the world, Uh, really has this view of Christianity, largely, uh, that somehow coming to Christ makes everything better. Coming to Christ makes everything easier. Coming to Christ uh, is sort of the, the mode through which you get all the things that your heart ever wanted. In reality, what we find is that Christianity, the Christian life, living it out day by day, is actually much different than that. It's a life of suffering, and it's also a life of warfare. When, when you become a Christian, things don't get easier. They actually get much more difficult in so many ways. They, they get more difficult because instantaneously now you have an enemy who is on an, in an ongoing kind of way uh, seeking to oppose you because you are identified with the Lord who is his enemy. And so Satan is at work seeking to destroy you and to destroy Your faith. the The main command here uh, in this whole section is you need to stand, stand. But but the way that we stand, we see in this, is through the Lord's strength. You see, Satan, as much as you know, you might turn on and see some. Uh, somewhat maybe charismatic kind of Christians, and they'll they'll be talking about, you know, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, Satan. And, and that kind of sense, you know, it, it almost uh, treats Satan as if we have greater power than him or something like that. But the reality is... Uh, That Satan is a far greater enemy than we are Satan has far greater strength than we do so if we're going to stand against Satan if we're going to be victorious we have to stand in the Lord and not in any kind of inherent strength that that we have our enemy is Satan it says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood so many Christians seek to, to or, or if, they, if they realize that there's an enemy, uh, they, they tend to focus on, on, on people, on, on a physical enemy. But this is not a physical enemy. This is uh, the, the main enemy that we are fighting is a spiritual enemy. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We saw also that Satan has... It says here schemes that he's working. These, these are devious plots that he is working uh, uh, different avenues of attack in coming against us. We saw that this is, a, this is a, not an easy war, that, it, that it's kind of a down-in-the-dirt, hand-to-hand, face-to-face kind of combat. It's, not, it, it's nothing that, that is easy. We, we wrestle, he said, not against flesh and blood. Uh, but against these principalities and powers and so on. It's it's a combat, hand-to-hand kind of combat. Well, we need to stand. The way that we stand is through the strength of the Lord. And the, the strength of the Lord comes through the armor. He says, stand in the strength of the Lord. And let me tell you how to do that. How do you receive the help and the strength of God? You receive that help by putting on the armor that He has given to you. And so the armor is the strength. If you're going to stand against Satan, if you're going to be victorious, you have to be in the Lord's strength. And in order to be in the strength of the Lord, you need to have this armor on. And we've seen uh, going sort of piece by piece through uh, armor. And again, this is an analogy uh, that he's helping us understand what we need in the Christian life. Well, today, this morning, we come to the shield of faith. Notice verse 16, let's read that again. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now this word shield that is used here, uh, this was, maybe you've seen a Roman centurion before, uh, and, and you've seen maybe the little round shield that they would use. Uh, that would be used sort of in, uh, went, when they got in a little bit closer in, in the warfare, uh, just a little circular shield, but this word for shield is not that one. This is, this is a bigger shield. This was a shield, it's called a scudum, uh, is, is the word for it, uh, but it's two and a half feet wide by four feet tall. It was sort of a, a, a con- concave, it, it was rounded around a little bit, Okay. Uh, And so this was something that as you're charging into battle, it weighed something like 22 pounds. This was this was a big deal. It was made of wood. uh, And then they had sort of calf skin or or vellum over top of it uh, and and sort of metal that trimmed around the edges. This was a very heavy, very big shield. In fact, I saw and kind of researching this a little bit, Uh, they would actually go into battle sometimes in in a formation, and they used a a, a Latin word for it, Uh, but, but basically it's a word that means tortoise and uh, they would kind of gather together in a group, and so you'd be standing side by side with people who all had one of these big shields, and then you'd have a group, a line going this way, and they would all have their shields this way, and then you had people in the middle, and they had their shields up over top of them, so you get the idea of a tortoise, a, a turtle. They were kind of in a shell. They were armored all the way around, and so as you're charging into battle, they would go in in this formation. If you're going against a city and your archers are set up on the wall, I mean, they're just lobbing arrows down there. They, if they've got somebody in their sights, they might aim, but but they're just trying to lob those arrows down and, and whoever it hits, it hits, right? That's that kind of form of warfare that, we're, that the analogy that Paul is drawing from. So he says here that, that they are to take up the shield of faith. That's what he's... That's what he's talking about. It says here these fiery arrows. We would be able to extinguish all the fiery darts or fiery arrows. Uh, Sometimes as they would be, uh, these archers would, would be up on the wall and shooting. And maybe you've seen... I don't know, a Mel Gibson movie or something, you know, you've seen this kind of thing before, right? They dip them uh, in in something that's flammable, uh, set them on fire, and then they start shooting them in there. So not only do you have the threat of sort of getting hit with an arrow, but these things are on fire, too. Uh, And so uh, that's what sort of the calf skin uh, over top of the, the outer exterior of these, when, when they would, darts would go into there, or arrows would go into there, uh, that would be successful in sort of putting out those fiery arrows. But notice what he says here, because with different pieces of armor, he, he, he makes different statements, and here he makes a few statements that are important. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Uh, in some translations, it's above everything else. Take up the shield of faith. And, and there's a question of whether it should be translated this or that way, uh, but, but the main import is the same either way, and that is simply this. This is really an important thing that you need to keep all the time. A, as I told you, uh, these shields were so large, sometimes what would happen, they would make their initial charge into the battle, right? And they'd have this shield, uh, but then as you sort of make your way in to go into sort of hand-to-hand combat, they might leave this shield behind. Uh, it's, it's 22 pounds. It's two and a half feet by four feet tall. Like it's not, it's not something that's easy just to carry around in battle. But, but Paul tells us here that above everything else or in every kind of circumstance, we don't need to put down this shield of faith. We need to keep it up at all times. And you notice here as well, that this is this is an impenetrable kind of defense. He says, you notice he, he says, in which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith is something that as long as we keep that the faith up, as long as we, take up this shield as long as we're marching into battle with it no no archer is getting an arrow through a shield like that right you, you are safe and so it is in this spiritual battle as long as we are walking in faith as long as we are trusting in the Lord and believing the the promises and the commands of God as long as we are walking in faith Satan is unable to to penetrate that uh, through his attacks So this morning, what I want us to do, first of all, is I just want us to consider faith. It's the shield of faith. Uh, I think as we do this, as as we stop and think about what really is faith, I think that can help us see then why is faith so important in this battle? Why is faith just this crucial thing that he says, listen, above everything else, or in every circumstance, all the time, why does, why does he stress it in that way? Why is faith so important in this spiritual battle? As we consider what faith is from a biblical standpoint, um, I, I think that will then begin to help us understand why it's so important and the role that it plays in this spiritual battle. So what is faith? Well, there's a couple different ways to sort of work at defining it from a biblical standpoint. Uh, One that that I've heard I think is good, especially in terms of when we're talking about saving faith, there's an acronym CAT, K-A-T, and there's sort of three elements to to faith, and and I think all three of these are are important. It helps us understand what faith is. The first is K for the CAT, not C-A-T, K-A-T, and that is knowledge. Faith begins with knowledge. We have to know something, right? We have to know. When it comes to the promises of God, you have to know the promises of God. If you're going to trust in the Lord, if you're going to trust in Christ as your Savior, you have to know the facts of the gospel, right? You, you have to have that, that knowledge. It has to be there. If you're going to trust the, in the character of God, you've got to know what His character is. And then the second phase of that is uh, the A, which is assent or we could say just agreement. N- not only do I know these facts, not only do I know these Bible verses, not only do I know these promises, not, a- not only am I able to articulate what the gospel is, but I believe it to be true. I believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. I believe that God never will leave me nor forsake me. I believe that God is good. I believe that God is merciful. You see, I personally agree that those things are true. There are many people who know a lot of facts about the Bible, that that know more facts about the Bible. They know more theology than than you or I combined, and yet they don't believe it to be true. They don't have faith. They're, They're not believers So there has to be agreement. Now, this is where we're getting into sort of the dangerous part, because there are many people who have these first two aspects of faith. I know what the Bible says. I know the gospel. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. And I actually believe those things to be true. I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross, and that three days later He rose again. I really do believe that God will never leave me and forsake me. I believe that God is merciful. I believe that God is 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 good, and that He's truthful. I believe all of those things. I, I believe they're true. But you see, there's a third element to any kind of real Christian faith, and that's the T. So we've got knowledge we've got assent or agreement and the third is trust there's a personal trust that is involved in saving faith you can have these first two things i know them and i believe them to be true and yet i'm not actually personally trusting in christ to save me i'm not relying on the mercy of god i'm not relying on the goodness or truthfulness of God. I I haven't invested myself in it. I haven't laid my life down. I haven't given myself over to believe in this in a way that would actually uh, move me to to act. There is this personal trust. This personal trust is why James says that faith will always have works. James says you say you have faith And you don't have works. He says, you need to show me your works if you want to show me your faith. The reason that is is because a personal trust, if you're truly trusting in God, if you're truly trusting in Christ, it it means then that you're going to give your life over to follow him. Right? It's one thing to say Jesus is the son of God, that, that Jesus died on the cross, and I agree with those things. It's quite another thing to say I'm personally trusting in him. I'm going to live my life for him. That's that third element of faith, this personal trust. Well, There's another way of describing it and for this I'd, I'd encourage you to go to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, this is one of the really clear definitions of faith in in the Bible. Hebrews 11 verse number 1 and for this one we might say that faith is sort of the eyesight of the soul. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. Hebrews 11:1. Now faith is is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And then verse number six, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this First verse we get really a condensed kind of definition of of what faith is and he says that faith is the assurance or the substance of things that are hoped for and The conviction of things not seen so let's talk about both of those for a minute Uh, if you know the Bible there's there's often uh, what we call parallelism which is sometimes people will write and they'll say the same thing in two different ways The first line is saying it one way, and then they'll repeat it, but they'll say it in a different way. And that's what's going on here in Hebrews 11.1. He's telling us what faith is, and he expresses it in two different ways. He says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and then the second line, the conviction of things not seen. So what does this assurance mean? What does this word uh, assurance mean? Well, Andy Davis in, in his book, Uh, that deals with faith said this. He says, the assurance of things hoped for is a settled confidence that God will bring about all the good things He has promised to us in Christ. It is here, he says, a settled confidence. It is an uh, assurance. And then the second word in the the second line is a similar word, conviction. The word conviction means to be certain of something on a matter. That's like when we talk about a jury comes back and they convicted him. What are we saying there? We're saying that these people are certain that this person is guilty. They've convicted him. To have a conviction is to to have something that you believe to be true. Like, I'm convicted that this is wrong. This is a personal conviction. It's something that I am assured of. It's something that I personally am certain of. So both of these words, it's the assurance of things hoped for. uh, That's a settled confidence. And and it's also the conviction, the certainty of things that are not seen. A strong persuasion. Now, he says here, of things that are hoped for. It's the assurance, the settled confidence of things that are hoped for. Well, what does that mean? Does that just mean like, boy, I really hope that this is true. Man, I really wish that we could have this, or I really wish that th- this would happen, and I'm, I want to be assured that it will. Now, when the Bible uses the word hope, uh, it, it means something that you know is coming, and you're anticipating its arrival. So some of you are in school. We've got some teachers here. They are hoping for the end of school. Does that mean they're uncertain if it's coming or not? Maybe they, maybe they feel that way at this point. Like, is it ever going to get here? But no. Uh, the students and teachers here, they know the end of school is coming. It's only, what, a couple weeks away, a week or two away. Uh, they know it's coming. The arrival is going to get here. But in the meantime, Pam is anticipating that, right? no we we won't point anybody out like she she's waiting for that teachers are longing for that to happen that's what we mean when we use the word hope in a biblical sense so so in the bible there are things that we know are coming they're coming down the road we we know that and we're assured right now we have a settled confidence that those things are going to come about like we have a a hope the bible says of a resurrection are you in doubt that the resurrection is going to come? We know. No, we trust. We have an assurance. We have a settled confidence right now, although it isn't here yet, that it is going to come and we're longing for it. So it's the assurance of something that's coming in the future. It's also, he says here, uh, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that are not seen. The conviction. The, the, the being persuaded of things that I don't really necessarily see right now. Now this is the reality. Christianity necessarily deals with things that are not seen. Like That's, that's what it is. It, Christianity has to do with spiritual things. And spiritual things, by very definition, are not physical things. Physical things you can see, but spiritual things you cannot see. And so as we think about the the Christian faith, uh, many people sort of have a a naturalistic worldview, and a naturalistic worldview says, it's only real if I can experience it with my five senses. If I can touch it, if I can taste it, if I can smell it, if I can see it, if I can hear it, then it's real. And if I can't experience it with any of those senses, then it isn't real. That's what naturalism is. That's what materialism is. You can touch it, see it, taste it, feel it. Smell it. Did I get them all? It's real. If not, it is not real. The spiritual is not real because we cannot experience it with those senses. But Christianity says, no, no, no. there is a spiritual realm. There are spiritual realities that are just as real as you and I sitting here. They're just as real as this pulpit here, although we cannot see them. And so uh, Christianity or faith really here is defined as, as the conviction... Uh, the, the, the settled confidence or the persuasion that some things that are unseen are really true. Think about everything in, in the Christian faith. God himself is unseeable. The Bible says that no one has seen the Lord at, at any time. 1 Timothy 1.17, uh, in a prayer of, of adoration to the Lord, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.17, To the king of the ages, immortal Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray, he says, Listen, go into your closet, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, who is unseeable, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Even Jesus to us is is unseen. Now we know that Jesus actually, that was the unique thing about Christ, that the Son of God took on flesh. He, he became physical. He, he took on humanity so that, so that the disciples and those who lived at that time could see Him. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and lived among us. John 1.18, it's that passage that I quoted earlier, no one has ever seen God at any time, but, but, but the Word has made Him known. And then in 1 John 1, 1 we see uh, that, that Christ was seen by the disciples and by those who lived at, time, at that time. It says in John, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John here is saying that Christ really did take on flesh Christ really did come and live among us so that he could be seen. Our hands have touched him. We have talked with him. We have seen him. But you know what Jesus said to his disciples? You remember Thomas didn't believe the resurrection? And finally he says, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see him and I put my hands in his, put my hands in, his, in the nail prints of his hands, right? I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus finally reveals himself to Thomas, and Thomas sees him. And he says, look at the scars in my hand and my feet and my side. Come come and see me, uh, Thomas. Touch me. And, and, And Thomas does that, and Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. He realizes Jesus really did rise from the dead. You remember what Jesus said, though. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. That's us. We haven't seen Christ. have we? we've, we've never seen God. No one's ever seen the Lord. Uh, God the Son became a human being and took on flesh. People did actually see him and were able to touch him and converse with him. Uh, and, and lived he dwelled among us they said but but Jesus knew he was ascending back to heaven and He's saying Thomas. This is good I'm glad that you believe because you could actually see but there are people who are going to have to just believe based on The testimony of the Apostles and blessed are they who believe even though they have not seen This is what Peter says as well in first Peter 1 uh, verse 8 uh, verse 9 he says though you have not seen him talking about Christ you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice in joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So God is unseeable. Christ our Savior is unseen to us. Our future is unseen. We're, we're awaiting a new heavens and new earth. Uh, although there are many people uh, who want to go around with different kinds of and write books about the fact that they've seen or they've been there and that kind of uh, nonsense. Uh, I, I, I don't believe anyone's ever been to heaven or, or seen heaven. And so, uh, th- this is, our future is unseen. We're waiting for something that is not yet seen. And so to be a Christian, to have faith, is to be confident of these unseen realities. In fact, this is what the Bible teaches, that the essence of the Christian faith, listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's where you and I are. We are... Believing things that we have not seen with our physical eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight. Earlier in Second Corinthians 4.16, he says a similar thing. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, listen to this, as we look. Not to things that are seen. We don't look at things that are seen. But to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So, so let me ask you a question there on, on that passage. We look to, he says, he says it in negative, we, we look not at things that are seen, But then he says it in a positive way, but we look to things that are unseen. Now, just stop and think. We look at things that are unseen. How do you look at something that is unseen? Did you ever stop and think about that passage before? We look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. How does a person look at unseen things? If you're looking at it, it's seen, right? It's, it's not unseen if you're looking at it. But, but what he's talking about here is that verse that we looked at earlier. We walk by faith, not by sight. You see, this is why I said that, that faith is the eyesight of the soul. The things that we're looking to that are unseen, we're not looking to, he's saying, with our physical eyes. We don't see it with our physical eyes. That's why it's unseen. But we look to it through our soul, through, through faith. It is by faith that we look to these things. It's by faith. Anybody here ever seen Christ? We haven't seen Christ. We haven't seen the Lord. We haven't walked with Christ. We haven't seen heaven. But we look to those things with the eyes of the soul. And that is faith. The Christian life is an act of living based on these unseen realities. Faith, in this way then, is another way of Knowing not the five senses we know through our senses, but there's another way that you can know there's another Avenue of knowledge not just the five senses because we are spiritual beings we can know things not through our Experiences not through our five senses. We can know and be persuaded that things are real and true through the eyes of faith in this contrast where he talks about faith and sight, I think, we, I think we actually get a comparison. He's comparing, although he's saying we don't live by, uh, by sight, but by faith, and he's contrasting them in that way. But in another way, he's sort of equating them. He's saying that faith is really like sight. It's another form of sight. You see, faith then is the ability to know and be assured of realities which are not ordinarily experienced through the physical sense, senses. Faith is the ability to know and to be assured. How do you know things? You say, well, I see it, or I hear it, or I taste it, or I smell it, or I touch it, right? That's that's how I know things. And what this is saying, this definition of faith is, there's another avenue of knowledge. Faith is the ability to know and be assured of realities which are not ordinarily experienced through the physical senses. Faith is the ability to perceive true spiritual realities and be confident of them, although they cannot be physically seen. Again, Andy Davis says this. He says, faith has the unique power under God to receive from Him spiritual truth. It is gifted with the ability to perceive what God is and what He is doing in the world. And so this ability really is essential To being a Christian think about Abraham I think Abraham is a perfect example and again it's in Hebrews chapter 11 which is dealing with with faith and this is what it says of Abraham by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he went to live in a land of promise in other words, God had told him this was true, but he had not seen it, right? He, did, he didn't ex, hadn't experienced it. God told him. And so by faith, he trusted the, these promises of God. And so he went out to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to this. For he was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. How was it that Abraham was looking to this place he had never been? How, how could he see this? How was he looking at it? Well, he was looking at it through the eyes of faith. It goes on in verse 13 to say this, talking about Abraham and others who had faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, God had held out promises to them, but they were clearly not promises that were meant to be fully realized in this life. So they all died. Every person in the Old Testament died without fully experiencing all the promises of God. You are going to die without fully experiencing in this life all the promises of God. And so many Christians get turned upside down because I don't think they realize that. The promises of God are not primarily about this life. There are promises that that pertain to this life. But the promises of of God are primarily future-oriented. So you will die. You will die without fully experiencing the promises of God in this life. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But listen to this. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Again, how did they see them? He just said they didn't experience it. They, Abraham never got to live in this land. He didn't get to experience all the things that God was going to do. Uh, Isaac and Jacob, the, the people of Israel, you and I, we, we never get to fully experience God's promises in this life. But it says that they, uh, although they had never uh, experienced them, they, they didn't receive them having seen them and greeted them from afar. How did they see those promises? They saw them through the eyes of faith. They didn't see them with their physical eyes. They didn't hear them. They didn't didn't experience them with their five senses, but they received it through faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. Faith perceives what is real but is unseen. You see, some people will say, well, if you have faith, it's just not real. You you have faith in things that aren't real. No, no, no. These are very true realities. They are absolutely real, but they're not experienced through the senses. And so faith is that that quality that allows us to be able to perceive what is real although it is unseen. One more time from Andy Davis. He says this, like the eye, faith cannot create reality, but in passively receives information of the true nature of things. Uh, In other words, we're not creating reality. We're not saying, well, I believe there's a God so I can sleep better at night. No, there is a God and you have to have faith to experience Him. We're not saying, you know, it makes me feel better when I go to a funeral if we can talk about heaven, so I believe in heaven. Okay, but it may or may not be real. No, there really is a heaven uh, and it is faith Uh, that allows us to see that reality, to know that reality. We're, We're not just saying that there's a God who's in control of my life so that I can I don't have to be on anxiety medicine, so I can kind of feel like things are going for a purpose. No, no, there is really a God who is in control of your life and every step of every day, everything is directed by this Lord who loves you. He really is there, but you have to have faith to know Him. You have to have faith to experience Him. You're not going to see Him with your eyes. He's likely not going to speak to you audibly. Uh, You have to have faith. It is faith that gives us the assurance of things that are not seen. It it, it is the conviction of things that are hoped for, that are coming, and that we are awaiting their arrival. This is what faith is. Well, how does faith play such a crucial role then in our spiritual battle? Why, Why is it so essential? Well, it is essential because our perception and certainty about God and his promises is essential to overcome temptation and accusation. Our perception of these truths about God's promises and our certainty about them is absolutely crucial, vitally important for you to be able to overcome the temptations and accusations of Satan. In other words, if you're unsure of God, if you're unsure of His existence, if you are unsure that He's true, if you are unsure that His promises really will uh, come true, that He really do what will do what He said He has done, if you're unsure that what He says is sin is sin, then you're going to be an easy prey for Satan. And in fact, that's the way that Satan always works. Satan always works in temptation and accusation by first sowing doubt. The the first thing that has to happen for you is you've got to begin to waver. If you're going to fall into sin or or if you're going to become uh, easy prey for his accusations, the first thing that has to happen is you've got to begin to doubt. And he knows that. And so this is why Faith is such a crucial thing, and it's also why, as we said earlier, that faith really is an impenetrable defense. If you believe in the Lord, if you believe His Word, if you trust His promises, if you believe what He says, then when Satan comes at you with things that are untrue, that, that, that's, that they're not going to have any effect on you. They're not gonna, those arrows aren't going to be able to get to you because of the shield of faith. Faith is essential in overcoming temptation. We act on what we believe to be true, and it's faith that gives us the certainty about God's truth. In fact, faith is actually necessary to do anything of spiritual good. You know, you cannot do one thing that's pleasing to the Lord without faith. Listen to what that verse we read earlier from Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe. And think back about our definition of faith. They must have a settled confidence. They must be assured of things that are hoped for. They must believe that God exists, that He exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him. You see, if you're going to do anything for the Lord in a positive sense, it's got to come from faith. It's got to come from an assurance that God, number one, God really does exist. That He is there. uh, that, That His Word is true. And that His promises are true. That He will reward those who diligently seek Him. Everything in the Christian life is motivated by faith. Faith is absolutely essential. Without faith... It's impossible to please God because without faith you won't want to please God or you won't feel that you need to please God. Any positive action is rooted in our certainty that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now, in the last couple minutes here, let's think about the object of faith the object of our faith now we want to be careful because sometimes people talk about faith as if it's some kind of magical thing like if you just have faith it sort of creates reality for you in fact there are there are people who teach that the word faith movement if you just simply believe you're almost you're, you're like God and if you just believe you have creative power that your faith has a a, a a power to sort of create this reality so just if that's what you want believe for it if you believe. You pray in faith. If you have faith, that reality will come about. That's not what we're saying here. Faith has no power in and of itself. Faith has power because of the object in which we put our faith. You see, the the power and the strength, again, do we need to be reminded, is the strength of the Lord. We stand in His strength. It is in His power. He's the one who's able to do these things. Faith is a passive thing. It it is an open hand that receives the gifts and the blessings and the promises of God. So faith is assured of several things. Faith is assured that God's Word is true. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is true fixed in the heavens. That's why it's crucial to have faith in this spiritual battle. You've got to have certainty. Is God's word truth? If you waver on whether this is true or not, if you kind of pick and choose and you're like, well, there are parts of this that are true and there are parts, but if you, if you do that, you're going to be easy prey for Satan because guess what happens? If you doubt God's words, the, the, the parts that you doubt always somehow miraculously correspond with the things that you want to do that are sinful, right? Well, I don't really want to do that. Well, that's probably not even true anyway, right? There are other things that are not true in God's Word. And so we, we must have assurance that God's Word is true if we're going to stand uh, against the, the schemes of Satan. We, we must have faith. We must trust that, that God is faithful even during trials, That God will bring us through those uh, temptations and trials. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Do you believe that God is faithful in trials and in temptations? Do you believe that God will hear your prayers Do you have assurance, a settled confidence that God's love for you is unchanging? That His steadfast love endures forever? Do you have confidence this morning that God is with you? uh, That He will never leave you nor forsake you? You? do you have a settled confidence do you have an assurance although you are not able to see it with your eyes that God will take care of you that he will as Paul says in Philippians four nineteen, he will supply every need of yours do you have confidence in that do you believe that God will give you strength uh, that he will not leave you alone do you believe that God uh, has good planned for you 1 Corinthians 2 9 says this, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you have a settled confidence about that this morning? Do you have an assurance? that God has great things planned for you. You see, if you believe these things, if you have a settled confidence about those things and about all of the promises, all of the truth of God's word, you will be able to stand against the attacks of Satan. But if you are wavering and doubting that those things are true, Satan will have a field day with you. You will be defenseless against his attacks.